that through first grade. You're most welcome to take your children back there now. But for those of you, again, whose children are staying in the service, we love having children in the service with us, uh, worshiping with us, learning the rhythms of worship alongside of us. Uh, we have been going through our London, our, our statement of faith, our confession of faith known as the the London Confession of Faith, and there's a copy, should be a copy in the pew in front of you. Um, you are more than welcome to just open it up. We've just been uh, looking how the Confession of Faith summarizes particular doctrines in Scripture, and you'll notice uh, in the book there, the, the biblical uh, footnotes that you see, and, and, and we shouldn't think of those as proof texts, uh, but more so uh, teaching us how to read Scripture, if you were to look those up. But this morning, I just wanted to read uh, chapter 8, which is a statement on Christ as mediator in, in, uh, uh, in paragraph 9. It says this, and we've been considering uh, this over the last several weeks especially, but this office of mediator between God and humanity is appropriate for Christ alone, who is the prophet and priest, and king of the church of God, this office may not be transferred from him to anyone else, either in whole or in part. So that's paragraph 9 of chapter 8 of our confession. Uh, But turn with me, if you have your Bibles, to the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Mark chapter 9. And this morning we're going to look at particularly verses 2 through verse 13 in a portion of Scripture, a section of Scripture that is known, uh, and this is probably the heading in many of your Bibles as the transfiguration uh, of Jesus Christ. And so allow me to read this passage, and then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to begin to work through this text together this morning. John Mark, under the inspiration of, of the Holy Spirit, he penned these words, and the Holy Spirit of God has preserved these words for us so that we can read them now. It says this, Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Verse 4, And Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, because, this is Mark's commentary for us, he didn't know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. And a cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son. Hear him. Suddenly, when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. Now, as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one the things they had seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, saying, Why did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Then he answered and told them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And how is it written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has also come. And they did to him whatever they wished as it was written of him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. 
God, we thank you for this time that we have together as the bride, as the body of Christ. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to understand this passage, Lord, that you would help me as I preach about it this morning and that we would, as a result, savor Christ and be transformed more into his image. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this is, in, in my opinion, a, a glorious passage to, to spend time considering together. Right? This historical event is what is known, as I said a moment ago, as the transfiguration of Jesus. And, and it was such an important and life-altering event that Peter, at the end of his life, when he was facing martyrdom, when he was um, you know, approaching his, his execution, approaching his, his death, he included this in his last letter. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 17 to 18 says this, For he received from God, speaking of Christ, uh, For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent, some of your translations may say majestic, but from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice, which came from heaven, and when we were with him on that holy mountain. Those years later, right? this is what Peter includes right? in his final letter. Right? His memory of the transfiguration of Jesus on that holy mountain, right? a mountain that, that, that was made holy by the presence of the triune God. What is it about this event, this historic account, that was so prevalent in the memory of Peter as he experienced persecution at uh, the hands of the, the, the wicked emperor Nero? This passage of Scripture, I think, I, and, and just by way of reminder, quickly, right, Mark is, is writing this, again, to uh, this Roman audience, this gospel. He's, he's writing to a Roman's, Roman audience. We've established that he was highly influenced by Peter. They're experiencing persecution as Christians, right? And, and we see the transfiguration that is included here. We see it included also in Matthew and Luke as well. But this passage, is, as, as I've considered it this week, it, it offends, if you will, our, um, our pragmatic tendencies as, as Christians. Right. As I've thought about it, this passage, and, and, and others like it, right, I, I can't help but, but to think of how we reduce God and how we reduce Scripture uh, to some sort of utilitarian kind of manual. And, and, and by utilitarian, I mean, right, we have a tendency to want everything to be practical and, and functional, and we have little use for simply beholding what's beautiful. Yet, it's the appearance of God that Peter writes about at the end of his life in the, the midst of extreme persecution, it's the appearance of God that we've just read about here in the Transfiguration. It's the appearance of God that in First Peter, he's recounting for fellow Christians that are suffering. And that's what I want to think about together this morning. All right, what we get a glimpse here of 
is what those in church tradition have, have called, and, and for those of you that are members, I, I, I emailed this to you this week, but we get a glimpse of what's called the, the beatific vision. And, and kids, that may be a new phrase for you. Uh, it's new to a lot of adults in the room this morning, but it's not new. It's a, it's a, a very old phrase, and it simply means the sight that makes happy. The sight that makes happy. Over the centuries, it, it's been lost, it's been distorted in many ways, but I think it's something that we should retrieve. It's something that we should recover. And for the Christian, it's a sight that we long for. It's a sight that we're moving toward one day, but it's a sight that comes into clearer and clearer focus as the Lord is increasingly our delight, our happiness. Matthew 5, 8, blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they shall see God. The Puritan Thomas Watson, he said of the beatific vision that it is the perfection of happiness, the perfection of happiness. Perhaps the greatest thinker, theologian, philosopher in the history of America, Jonathan Edwards, said that the focus of the beatific vision is God who's the giver of this happy sight. And it makes me think of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question and answer one, that says, what's the chief end of man, right? Why do we exist? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever, right? That's the goal of the Christian, to enjoy God, to be happy in God, not to approach Him because of the gifts that He gives us, although He's a good gift giver, right? Not to view Him again in this sort of utilitarian way, but to approach him through Christ so that we may enjoy him, so that we may delight in him. And our delighting and our enjoying him is at the same time glorifying to him. There are two sides of the same coin. However, this way of thinking about God for us, right, beholding him with eyes of faith, it, it, it stands in stark contrast to the way that we often think in a society that's obsessed with productivity and progress, according to our definition of those particular words. So this morning, I want to worshipfully just consider three things with you this morning. And I'm going to use the word behold to connect all three points because I think it fits our passage well thematically. And because as Christians, we're to behold Christ as he's revealed to us in Scripture. And so the three things this morning that I want us to consider, and this is included in your notes, and kids, if you're taking, taking notes along with your parents, you'll notice that uh, you have some blanks in your, in your worship guide. But the three things are this. I want us to behold the purity of Jesus in the transfiguration together. This is the first thing we're going to consider. The second thing that we're going to behold is Jesus as the fulfillment of the law and the prophets in the transfiguration. And the third thing is we're going to behold the Trinitarian testimony about Jesus in the transfiguration. So the first thing, beholding the purity of Jesus in the transfiguration. We see that our text, it takes place six days after Jesus' teaching that the, the path of the disciple is a path of self-denial, that it's a, the path of the, the cross. And it opens with Jesus taking Peter, James, and John, his three closest companions, right, during his first advent to a, to a mountain, to the holy mountain. Now, 
We don't have biblical evidence for where that mountain is, but church traditions located it at Mount um, Tabor. And, and it's a holy mountain is what Mark uh, calls it, uh, in which Jesus is transfigured. And that word for transfigured, it, it, it means changed. And, and we shouldn't think of it, though, as a change to Christ, um, but we should think of it rather as a further disclosing of his eternal divine nature. Right? When we think of change to Jesus, we think of, of Jesus uh, adding his, uh, humanity, right? Adding humanity as a, a nature to his, uh, um, uh, to his person, right? We think of the incarnation. We think of him condescending to us, but we don't think of change in terms of the deity of Jesus. Now, how is the transfiguration described to us? If you're looking with me at your text, we see in verse 3, it says, His clothes became shining exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. We see Jesus through this record, first and foremost, is radiant. Don't we? we see him as radiant. Right? The text says that his clothes became shining exceedingly white like snow. Where does your mind go when you, you read this description of the transfiguration? Like mine goes to purity. And I, I just think about the word pure or purity. Right? This language Mark is using here, it, it symbolizes purity. Right? Christ was and is exceedingly pure. I think even about the illustration that's given by Mark. He says, such as no launderer on earth can whiten. Right, when you think about getting stains out of white linen, right, you think of bleach, right? When you think about the ultimate disinfectant, you think about bleach. And, and Mark, under the inspiration of the Spirit, he, he's illustrating this idea of purity, of, of moral cleanness by giving that picture to us. He's saying that Jesus is so radiant, he's so bright, he's so clean that no amount of bleach on earth can produce that kind of cleanness. Jesus is pure. Jesus is clean. Now let's bring that to bear on the life of the Christian. Right? For those of us that are professing Christ, that are resting in Christ, that are trusting in Christ, as it relates to purity as it relates to Jesus being clean. One of the places that my mind goes to as I think of, of how that impacts me as, as the Christian, right, I think of the prayer of David, right? Psalm 51. Right, if you're familiar with that, this is a, a prayer of confession from King David after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba and she was impregnated and then he tried to cover up his sin by having her husband put on the front line of the, you know, the, the fiercest battle, having him murdered, right? Um, but the prophet Nathan, he comes and confronts David, and by the Spirit of God, David prays this, this prayer of repentance. In Psalm 51, starting with verse 1, "'Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly.'" That word wash from my iniquity. Cleanse me 
from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sins ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts and in the hidden part you'll make known, you'll make me to know wisdom. Purge me, he says, with hyssop and I shall be clean. And the end of verse 7 there, wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Or consider, too, the Lord's prophecy through Isaiah. And he says, come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. This is in chapter 1, verse 18. Though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Or we have John's vision in in Revelation chapter 7, verses 13 to 14, related to those who were persecuted for their faith. He says, Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in the white robes, and where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Right, This Jesus that we see in the transfiguration, right, who's clothes are shining exceedingly white like snow, is the one through who through his shed blood makes us clean, right? This means that the prayer of, of David in Psalm 51, it's not a hopeless prayer because God in Christ cleanses us morally, right? Isaiah's prophecy is true because the purity of Jesus removes our deepest stains of sin, right? The martyrs that we see in Revelation have hope because they've been made clean by the blood of the Lamb, And that's true for you and for me this morning. So as we behold the purity of Jesus, we need to remember because we're forgetful that it's Him alone that makes us pure. He alone makes us pure. He alone removes the deepest stains of sin. And maybe you're sitting here this morning and you've never, perhaps you've never experienced that. You think that you're too far gone. You're not. You're not. Right? The blood of Jesus, it's, a, it's an everlasting disinfectant for the disease that is your sin. He saved worse sinners than you. Right? He can save you. He can save you. For the Christian this morning, maybe you're feeling just the crushing weight of, of unrepentant sin, and you think that you've gone past the point of, of no return. Look to David, the adulterer, the murderer. Look to Paul, who gave oversight to the execution of of Christians, who produced, through his own works, martyrs of the faith. Look even to Peter, who denied Jesus three times in the hour of Christ's passion. And remember The blood of Jesus removes the deepest stain of sin. The purity of Jesus is more potent than your deepest stain of sin. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Christ is the only one who's pure in heart. And it's Him alone that makes us pure in heart and gives us hope and the capacity to have this 
happy side of God that we're talking about this morning, that we see this shadow of through the transfiguration of Jesus. And so this morning, the first thing we behold is the purity of Jesus, and we see how much that benefits us. Secondly, behold, Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and prophets in the transfiguration. Now, Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus at the transfiguration, and they speak about, quote, deep matters. And this is so disorienting to to Peter, James, and John, and, and, and terrifying even, that that Peter offers to make them a a dwelling place, a a tabernacle, a place to stay. Now, how Peter, James, and John know it to be Moses and Elijah that appear alongside of Jesus is a a mystery. We're not given insight into that, right? We just have to assume that it's through special revelation, but it is according to Scripture, Moses and Elijah that appear alongside of Jesus. Now, have you ever wondered why Moses and Elijah Why them? Why are they the ones that appear with Jesus in the transfiguration? And I think there's at least two primary reasons why that's the case. First, we know Moses to be the one which, uh, whom through God mediated his law, right? Civil, ceremonial, moral law, moral law that we've been considering as we've been working through the Ten Commandments, right? Moses is known as, as, as a law giver, if you will, on behalf of God. He's a central figure as it relates to the law of God. What do we know Elijah as? Prophet, right? We know him to be a prophet, one who declared judgment and salvation to God's people. Now, as we hold that in our minds for a moment, what do we remember Jesus saying of the Old Testament as it relates to him? Just a few passages to jog our memories. John chapter 5, verses 39 to 40. Speaking to the religious leaders of the day, Jesus says, You search the Scriptures, and he's referencing the Old Testament by using that. You search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. But you're not willing to come to me that you may have life. We see later in verses 46 to 47, Jesus tells the religious leaders again, If you believed Moses you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you don't believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Speaking to his disciples before his ascension to the right hand of the Father, Jesus says this in Luke chapter 24, verses 44 to 48. He says, he says to them, he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses right, in the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. Then he said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. Moses and Elijah's presence at the transfiguration, they testify to Jesus being the fulfillment of the Old Testament, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law of God perfectly, and that Jesus alone is the one, in wh- is the, one the, the long-awaited for Messiah that would bring salvation to His people, right? So Moses and Elijah, they're, they're 
testifying, if you will, okay? They're, they're saying amen to Jesus's person and his work. In fact, Luke, and he's the only one of the gospel writers to do this, he, he actually records for us the, the deep matters that Jesus and Moses and Elijah were discussing, were talking about at the transfiguration. He says that they spoke of his, in verse 31 of chapter 9 of Luke, spoke of Christ's decrease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem, right? This decrease is what Jesus tells the disciples about after the transfiguration. Look back at verses 9 to 13 with me. After the transfiguration, right? They came down from the mountain. He commanded them that they should tell no one the things they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, saying, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Then he answered and told them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And how is it written concerning the Son of Man? That he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has also come, and they did to him whatever they wished, as it's written of me. I know that can be a confusing passage at at first pass. But after the transfiguration here, this, this text is telling us that you know, we see Jesus tell Peter, James, and John to keep what they had witnessed to themselves until after his resurrection. We see that they're not getting it still, right? They're not understanding the messianic nature of, of Christ's, um, uh, they're not understanding his messianic work, his messianic mission. And as they ponder what rising from the dead means, they ask that question, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Now, we know that John the Baptist, if you're familiar with this passage, right, he was considered the last of the Old Testament prophets, if you will, right? He, he was a prophet like that of the Old Testament that prepared the way for Jesus. And Luke connects the ministry of John the Baptist with the ministry of Elijah. Just quickly flip over to Luke 1 with me. Just, I, want, I want you to see verses 13 to 17 because it's crucial we get this to understand what Jesus is saying here. It says, but the angel said to him, said to Zacharias, this is about his wife, Elizabeth, bearing a son. He says, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him, and pay attention to this. He will also go before him, okay, before Christ's, in in Christ's first advent, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So we see this connection here as it relates to Elijah and John the Baptist, right? And we also know that Jesus answered the disciples' question about Elijah plainly after the transfiguration in a way that they connected clearly that John John the Baptist being the fulfillment of this this coming of Elijah, if you will. And we see that in Matthew chapter 17, verses 11 through 13. But Jesus goes even beyond that. 
And what he says is a continuation of what he was discussing with Moses and Elijah. Jesus said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be treated with contempt. And the bottom line is this. Jesus is saying, Elijah did come, right? That prophecy was fulfilled, meaning John, John the Baptist, right? The scribes rejected John the Baptist, and they will reject me because he prepared the way for me. That's what Jesus is telling them here. That's what Jesus is teaching them. So Moses and Elijah's appearance, and they're speaking to Jesus about his coming suffering, his coming rejection. It further solidified the testimony that Jesus was the long-awaited for Messiah, that he's the hope of salvation for the Old Testament saints, that he's the hope of salvation for those in the first century that were there, that were eyewitnesses. And he's the hope of salvation for those who would come after, including you and me. So this is the, the first thing that's significant about Moses and Elijah appearing with Jesus. Just quickly, you know, there's a second reason, I think, as it relates to the significance of Moses and Elijah appearing. We shouldn't ignore the fact that they are two Old Testament saints that saw the glory of God in a veiled way. They had had this happy sight, if you will. And again, that's what we're doing at the Transfiguration, right? We're, we're beholding, we're, we're, we're with, with uh, eyes of faith, beholding our God, seeking this happy sight. But look back with me, where I think we have this on the screens, if you can't flip there quick enough. First Kings where I want to go first, chapter 19, verses 11 to 13. We see this related to Elijah. Then he said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. So it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and he went out and he stood in the entrance of, a, of the cave. Suddenly a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Right, we see this encounter Elijah has with God. We also see something similar. Exodus chapter 33 Verses 18 to 23, as it relates to Moses, when Moses asks, and if you've you know, been around church for any length of time, you know his, his famous request of God, right? Show me your what? Your glory. Show me your glory. Then the Lord answered and said, I'll make all my goodness pass before you. I'll proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, here's a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock. So it shall be while my glory passes by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I'll take away my hand and you'll, you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And both Elijah and Moses, they receive from God this, this sight that makes a man happy. This sight that comforts a man, yet this sight isn't 
how we would think of the word sight. It's a veiled sight, right? We should see that, you know, even when we read a familiar passage like Isaiah chapter 6, right, where there's unfallen creatures, angelic creatures called seraphim, and as they're um, um, singing or declaring, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the whole earth is full of His glory, they're covering their eyes as they say that, as they circle the throne of God. So we see this veiled appearance of God, and we see that too in the transfiguration, which is the last thing I want us to behold together this morning. Point three, behold the Trinitarian testimony about Jesus in the transfiguration. First, we're given this image of a cloud, given this image of a cloud, and this cloud comes after Moses and Elijah show up. Okay, the first part of verse 7, and a cloud came and overshadowed them. And overshadowed is an interesting word. It's similar to the meaning of hover, hover. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, then the earth was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering, hovering over the face of the waters. The, the Spirit of God hovering like a, like a cloud. Right? He's not a cloud, right? but the biblical revelation right, condescends to, to us and helps us under, understand things about God that we couldn't otherwise perceive. But we see more cloud language in Exodus chapter 24, verses 16 to 17. The glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. The sight of the glory of of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. Exodus 16, 10, it came to pass as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the children of Israel, that they looked toward the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. Exodus 40, 34, then the cloud covered the tabernacles of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Or the Lord speaking to Moses like this in Numbers 11, verse 25, the Lord came down in the cloud and he spoke to him and he took of the spirit that was upon him and he placed the same upon the 70 elders and it happened when the spirit rested upon them that they prophesied, although they never did so again. Or in the New Testament, speaking of the ascension of Jesus, when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. So cloud means a covering. And and both the Hebrew and Greek are translated as clouds because clouds cover, or they hover, and it's often used as a symbol of the divine presence. And while it's a symbol of the divine presence of all three members of the Trinity, it's especially appropriated to the Spirit of God. But the second part of verse 7 in Mark is that the Father speaks. It says, And a cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son. Hear Him. And Matthew's account says, that this, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. Hear Him. Right? Matthew 17, 5. The voice is appropriated to the Father. We know that because he says, this is my beloved Son. And it's no coincidence that the words of the Father is similar to what we saw back at the baptism of Jesus, if you remember that. 
In Mark chapter 1, verses 10 to 11, immediately coming up from the water, right? he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending like a dove, not an actual dove, okay? Like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So again, we, we have this Trinitarian testimony about Jesus, about his person and about his work. And Peter, James, and John, and those of us hearing our text this morning are commanded by the Father to hear the Son, to hear the Son. The voice of the Father says, hear him, hear him. That's a command. And I think that it's significant for us. This morning, I started by introducing you to the phrase beatific vision. And I defined it as the sight that makes us happy. And I've tried to connect that throughout our text this morning. But what I didn't describe is the main way in which we see the glory of God. There's a reason that we weren't left with pictures of the invisible God. There's a reason we don't have actual pictures of Jesus, right? At best, pictures of Jesus capture His humanity, but they can never and never should capture his deity, right? And we should never attempt to intentionally or unintentionally divide the two natures of Jesus. Now, there's a reason we're given the second commandment about making images of God. So, so how do we see God? How do we have the sight that makes one happy, the vision that makes one happy? Because Scripture says that no man has seen or can see God. Now, we've briefly looked at the very veiled ways that God appeared to Moses and to Elijah, to Peter, James, and John, but how do we see him? The the main organ in which we behold the glory of God is not with our eyes, but it's with our ears. It's with our ears. Hear him, says the Father. And how blessed are we to have the completed canon of Scripture? In other words, how blessed are we to see God with our ears as the Holy Spirit gives us spiritual sight into the Word of God? Right? So this morning, we, we behold our God in Scripture. We behold our God as we hear the preaching of the Word of God. Right? We have this holy vocabulary that we've studied, that we are studying, so that we can Behold Him who's holy, holy, holy. And we know that this is made possible because of Christ alone, who's made us pure in heart by His person and work. I don't know what beholding will be like in the new heavens and in the new earth. But as we behold now, we can look forward at the same time to this even more intimate, grander, beholding of God, because it will, be, it will be a beholding without any hindrances whatsoever, especially the hindrance of sin, right? For now, we get a taste. For now, we see in part, but one day, much more. We go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for this account of the transfiguration, Lord. God, we thank you that we can see, as we listen to your word read, as we hear the preaching of your word, God, Lord, that we can see the purity of Jesus, God, and we can know that our union with him means that we are pure. God, we thank you 
for this testimony that He is in fact the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And Lord, we thank You for this Trinitarian testimony about Jesus. God, may that increase our delight, our enjoyment, our happiness in You. And may it help us to gain a even better grasp of the security of our salvation. It's authored, accomplished, and applied by you and you alone. So we love you. Thank you for this time we've had together in your word. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.